0: Good evening, Rua Church. I'm Alexander and one of the pastors here. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9 in your Bibles. And we will be in verse uh, 37 of Luke chapter 9. And once you have found that text, I would invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus spoke to his disciples. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about what he had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. To you guys can be seated. As we are continuing our exposition of Luke's gospel, uh, we come now to this uh, section uh, where we take quite a sharp turn uh, from what we have been reading about uh, in uh, the last couple of verses, in the last couple of weeks, we've been studying uh, really several high points in the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, even last week, we uh, examined the Transfiguration account where Jesus is on the mountaintop uh, revealing his glory to his uh, disciples, namely uh, Peter, James, and John. And then uh, you know, after that big peak experience with uh, those three, Uh, we see now almost a a turn uh, and quite a negative turn uh, in the life of the disciples. And this is not a a one-off kind of event. If you uh, were to peek ahead into the next couple of verses we'll be looking at in the coming weeks, uh, you'll notice that this is actually going to mark the pattern of the disciples. They're going to fall short in many ways, failing to understand Jesus, failing to perform uh, the things that they previously were able to do uh, and even uh, uh, kind of culminating in, uh, in a misunderstanding of who they're supposed to love and how they're supposed to love those individuals and so uh, we see uh, almost a turn in the life of the disciples from a high moment of uh, ministry and a high moment of being uh, professing that jesus is the christ the son of god and now almost a, a turn uh, for the worse if we were to uh, let's say Summarize uh, this section or if you uh, like to take notes and uh, write down a title uh, This section is our long-suffering God our long-suffering God And what you see uh, here in in the text uh, is a sharp contrast between Jesus and His disciples uh, you see uh, the consistency Uh, which Jesus approaches and engages in his ministry and the uh, very uh, much lack of consistency that you see in the disciples ministry. And so as we we keep that in mind, uh, we keep that in view. uh, Let's look now at verse 37 and uh, turn our attention there. So you see uh, that it is the next day after they come off the mountain. It says they were uh, coming down from the mountain with him uh, and they meet a great crowd. Now, this crowd is the one that Luke has been introducing to us time and time again. It's been following Jesus around, sometimes bumping into him, sometimes uh, being the setting for many miracles. Uh, This crowd is almost the emblematic group of people that follows Jesus around. And Luke, uh, once again, introduces us to this crowd of people who follow Jesus' teachings closely. And this time, when Jesus is coming down from the mountain, we see that he meets with this great crowd, this massive crowd. And there's a man from the crowd who speaks up and who begs Jesus to provide healing for his son. You'll notice the petition there in verse 38, the man cries out from the crowd and he says, teacher, I am begging you, look at my son. He is my only begotten one. This is the same uh, word that uh, Jesus uh, is described as uh, being the only begotten of the father. The man here uses that same phrase. I, this is my only begotten child. This is my unique Child. This is the only one. And Luke is drawing an emphasis to us to show us that uh, this is a desperate situation, right? We've met desperate fathers before in Luke's gospel who are in need of healing from Jesus. And here the desperation is not only introduced by the nature of it being the only son of the father, uh, but also uh, the, let's say, severity of the affliction with which uh, the demon has afflicted this child. Uh, You'll notice the description uh, later, and I'm just going to skip down to that description, verse 39. Uh, The spirit seizes him. Uh, Because of the spirit seizing the boy, he uh, cries out or screams out or vocalizes. Uh, It throws him to the ground, and uh, it looks to be uh, almost like a seizure-like condition, which uh, there is some debate in the text as to whether or not this is describing a boy who has epilepsy and who has a severe form of epilepsy that's almost augmented or magnified by the demonic force, or if it is the demon that has caused the epileptic seizures to take place. It's unclear in the text whether there's an underlying health condition that is uh, magnified by the demon or whether the demon is the cause of this health condition. And so uh, the text is unclear either way, but what we are told is there's a severe condition to the point where uh, the very physical well-being of the child is at stake. You notice that uh, when the father is describing at the tail end what the affliction is like, he says it's not a one-time affliction here and there. The demon almost never leaves him. The demon does not let go of him. It causes him to fall down and foam with the mouth and it, it bruises him or it shakes him or it uh, shatters him or it cuts him or it tears him. It's a vivid description of the uh, affliction that this boy is experiencing caused by the demon who is afflicting him. And the demon is doing all these things and and doesn't even leave him alone. It doesn't give him times of break. Now, it's interesting if you were to, let's say, uh, peek back and look at all three of the synoptic gospels, all three of them have the transfiguration and this event back to back with one another. All three of them are going to highlight the same emphases in these passages. And so as we get deeper into this text, we're going to actually reference uh, a couple of those other texts just to get some additional details that can get flushed out. But all of them feel the gravity or feel the weight of the, let's say, mountaintop moment and then literally coming down that mountaintop experience and into essentially the affliction of humanity once again. And that affliction drawn out or amplified by not only the disciples inability to engage with the affliction or to heal, but also amplified by the severity of the condition that this boy has. So you see the the desperation of the father, Uh, the father addressing jesus for the healing these are elements we've seen before in various healing miracles but now we have let's say a uh, a wrench that's been thrown into the mix Uh, never before have we seen uh, the inability to heal present in luke's gospel Uh, we have seen uh, jesus engage in healing and it's almost become a assumed fact that jesus can easily heal whatever is presented to him the text Uh, here actually throws, let's say, a break in the pattern. And it tells us, uh, you know, off the heels of the disciples having been endowed with healing and endowed with the proclamation of the word. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 1 and following in uh, Luke's gospel. It's really only a couple of verses ago. So the disciples come off this whole tour where they preach and proclaim and they heal so powerfully that Herod is questioning whether uh, John the Baptist has come back incarnate, back into... The world. Uh, it causes such a stir in, in the world. And now we see the disciples, you know, only a couple of verses later, and now they're unable to heal one child who's got one demon afflicting him. That's, a, that's quite, a, quite a change. It's the first time we've seen the disciples unable to do uh, a healing. And this is going to be, let's say, the drama from which the rest of the text unfolds. Uh, the disciples backtrack. And this is not the first or the last time that they're going to backtrack well it is the first time at least in luke's gospel but they're going to continue to backtrack now really from this point forward up until really their restoration in chapter 24 of luke's gospel they have some ups they have some downs but largely what's going to mark them is misunderstanding and failure and falling short they are uh, on on a backsliding path and and disciples tend to do this kind of thing Uh, it was not uh, so long ago when i was in a physics class in college and my uh, professor had explained to us very simply how to do the experiment to perform all the instructions. He'd given us directions on the board, how to set up the software. And all we were supposed to do was to measure the, the standard acceleration of gravity, which sounds complicated, but all it is, is you take weights and you drop them, and you have little instruments that measure how fast those weights drop down. And they got to pass one, measure, one sensor and another sensor, and it gives you a reading. Well, we had set up all the uh, instruments. We had the different weights set up. We had all, everything ready to go. And the professor left the room for a time. He said, I'll be back in about 40 minutes. Have fun. And uh, it's a pretty simple experiment. It was week one of the class. And no sooner had he left and had we started the experiment when we realized our sensors weren't picking up any of the information that we were trying to assess. Uh, We saw the weight falling. We saw the sensors positioned correctly. The weight was passing through the sensors. Uh, But there was no uh, reading coming out onto the software that we were supposed to see. And... uh, after unplugging the software and plugging it back in and relaunching it and switching computers with another group, uh, we just could not figure out what was going on and about 40 minutes go by. And the professor comes back into the room to see how we are progressing in this experiment, uh, only to find that we have not even finished the first round of the testing. And it was with much reluctance that he comes up to our computer and shows us that we didn't have, we hadn't pressed record in the top right corner of the software in order to get any of these readings. Well, uh, Students tend to do this kind of thing where clear instructions are given, uh, clear directions are given from the teacher, and they are still somehow able to find ways to fall short of that clear directive. And this is the kind of thing that marks a student. They're figuring things out. They're figuring out how to work the world. And, and the disciples here, uh, they they're still haven't figured it out. You know, they've, they've come from a moment where they had figured it out. And then that's a sharply contrasted here with their inability to really solve or to heal this child. And so the man uh, expresses this frustration to Jesus. He says, "Can you help me? I'm begging you. Can you help me? Uh, because just so you know, I asked your disciples already, and they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't do it. it says that they were not able to drive out the demon. Now we can ask the question. Okay, well." It might be interesting to notice that the disciples can't do it, but we can ask the question, okay, why is it that the disciples are unable to heal this boy? Well, uh, without engaging in much conjecture, uh, we can simply look to the words of Jesus and reflecting on the father's question, and we can find the answer in those words. So remember, the, the father asks Jesus to heal him. He lets him know that the disciples were unable to. And then Jesus answers, verse 41, and he says these words, O generation crooked and twisted, how long am I to suffer with you? He says, how long am I to suffer with you? Because you are marked by faithlessness and and crookedness, or or you are a twisted and faithless generation. Now, uh, in that is, let's say, the uh, reason why the disciples are not able to drive out the demon. Namely, uh, they are faithless and they are crooked. Well. Uh, this language is not arbitrary. Uh, this is not uh, some language pulled out of thin air. This is actually uh, a reference or an illusion or a quotation from uh, the Old Testament. In fact, the, uh, as, it, as it is, it's called the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, renders the words of Deuteronomy 32.5 in this exact way, and it's that exact quotation that's that's listed here by Jesus. So uh, you don't need to, uh, to turn there necessarily, but uh, We know that Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint when he's referencing this, because uh, it's much like uh, the King James version of the Bible, but for the first century church. So they have this rendering of the Bible that's kind of old, kind of outdated, language is not quite up to date. And so you can tell when someone's quoting from that Bible because, uh, well, their language reflects it. They say things like thee and thy and thou, and they use vocabulary that's a little out of date. And Jesus is using here vocabulary that's a little out of date, but it's, it's perfectly taken from Deuteronomy 32.5, where the problem on the ground, Moses is reflecting on the people of Israel and their faithlessness and their crookedness or their twistedness. And that's all in view of the fact that Israel, despite having God regularly shown them his faithfulness, that they still turn to their sins time and time again and doubt the providence of God. In fact, in that text, in Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses is making reference to Numbers 14, where they send spies into the promised land, and although God has delivered them out of Egypt and beaten the superpower of that day, although he's provided for them in the wilderness, now when they go into the promised land that he has foretold to them, Israel balks and steps back and says, we're not so sure that we're ready for this. And God says, oh, how long am I to suffer with this crooked and twisted people? So Jesus is uh, using that same kind of language in reference to the generation before him, namely uh, the disciples that are right in front of him, who he's been teaching and walking with and who he's endowed with the ability to do these miracles and who are unable to do this. So it's marked by faithlessness and uh, a twistedness. Now uh, we we could ask, okay, well, that might explain why it is that the disciples are unable to drive out the demon, but we can ask the question, well, why are the disciples faithless and crooked, right? Only a couple of verses ago, we saw them doing a whole campaign ministry where Jesus isn't even around and they go out two by two, casting out demons and preaching the gospel. So what's happened between the early part of chapter nine and really now we're at the midway point of the chapter. What's happened between those two points in time? Well, the disciples are doing uh, what disciples do, namely they're growing inconsistently, and we can uh, certainly relate to the disciples if we reflect on the fact that it's not unlike a student of, uh, of the scriptures, it's not unlike a disciple of Christ to fluctuate in, their, uh, in the things that they know they should do and the things that they actually do on the ground. For instance, uh, we can say that there's been times in our lives where uh, we had a zeal for God's word. Maybe we've, we've been marked by a certain fervor to to hold on to the truth of scripture and to study it and to reflect on it and to meditate on it, only to find ourselves a week later unable to open up the Bible because we lack discipline. And what's happening there is not that we don't know what to do, it's not that we've lost the information, it's to the disciples point, it's not like they forgot how to cast out demons. There's a certain uh, friction in the way that just is kind of the mark of a disciple. It's because they're still on the learning journey, they're still in that process, but this is a mark of their faithlessness. This is a mark of their general bent towards doubting God and it plays itself out in them actually falling short of what they've been gifted to do. Remember, they were gifted to cast out demons. They are actually endowed with the authority to do that. This would be like today uh, if we were to say, well, we know that we ought to make disciples and that Jesus has specifically commissioned us for that and given us gifts according to the various uh, bestowings of the spirit in the church. And each of us knows that we have a gift if we're a Christian and we belong to a local church, but then we fall short of, let's say, actually exercising that gift within the local church. What's happening is not that we can't put two and two together and know that, well, we're part of the church and we have gifts that we've been given by God, but we still don't exercise them. That, that could happen. And it's not because God hasn't given them the gift to cast out demons, it's not because God hasn't given them the instruction on how to do so. Uh, it's simply that they're not exercising the gifts that they've been given. It's simply that they're falling short. Now, there's one text that, let's say, spells this out a little bit more clear, um, and it's actually the exact same account in Mark's gospel, and you can reference there as Mark 9, uh, 28 and 29. When the disciples, let's say, after all these events unfold, they come back to Jesus's house, and Jesus goes to them, and he says, uh, or they they ask him, uh, why is it that we weren't able to drive that demon out? And Jesus uh, says something striking in Mark 9, uh, verse 29. He says, this kind of demon is only able to be driven out by prayer. That's interesting because when Jesus here reflects on their inability to drive out the demon, he calls it faithlessness. And then on the ground, he says it's prayerlessness. And so it's uh, it's not too big of a jump to say that the faithlessness is expressed in their prayerlessness. the the fact that they don't pray is actually a mark of what he accuses them of here, namely that they're faithless. And this is uh, true even of us today. We can ask the question, okay, how do we have great faith or small faith, or how do we exercise our faith on the ground? It's not by uh, stirring ourselves up into a state of frenzy, and then going out in the day and saying, this is what great faith looks like, is confidence and, and no doubting in our hearts. That's not what faith necessarily looks like. But faithlessness can look like prayerlessness. It can look like going about the day, uh, engaging in our life without prayer, without submitting that to God, without engaging through the Spirit into the things that we are doing. And so their faithlessness spells itself out on the ground by their prayerlessness. And that is what prevents them from actually being successful in what they're supposed to be doing. And that's not all too different from uh, the Western church. If you were to, uh, let's say, ask for descriptions from the worldwide church, uh, what are the things that marks, let's say, the Western church versus the church around the world? Uh, the Western church is marked by the theologians, the writers, the uh, seminaries, the best schools. Uh, but it's also marked by the weakest and the lowest amount of prayer. It's so the two things that mark the Western church. And that is a breeding ground for faithless living out in our lives. Uh, Prayerlessness is, as some would say, functional atheism, which means uh, it's not that you don't believe in God in theory, but when you live your life functionally out in the world, you don't actually engage in your life as though God is real. It's called functional atheism. And so our faithlessness is no different than the disciples' faithlessness. All the ways in which we fall short today of our commission and what we ought to do is not all that different from the disciples. We're not endowed with the gift of casting out demons as they were. We have different gifts given to us according to the spelling out in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and other letters to the church. We're given gifts. Uh, We're given gifts of instruction, gifts of healing, gifts of service, gifts of stewardship, gifts of encouragement. These are gifts that people in the church are given. And when we fail to live these things out, it's likely not because we don't know how to do it or what to do. It's likely correlated with our our prayerlessness, our faithlessness, our inability to regularly uh, rely on God's spirit to actually do the things that he's given us the ability to do. And it's in contrast to the disciples falling short, they're backtracking from their previous glory in the early parts of chapter nine, that we uh, see the consistency of Jesus. So just because the disciples fall short of what they're supposed to do does not mean that Jesus is no longer God. It's not a commentary on his power or ability. It's it's a commentary purely on the disciples. Because as we see in verse 41, after Jesus responds, he tells the man to bring his son here. And in verse 42, uh, almost without missing a beat, the text tells us that although the demon assaults the boy in the moment that Jesus is going to drive out the demon, Jesus nevertheless drives out the demon with very little problem, heals the boy and returns back to his father. So it's almost uh, like Jesus has not pivoted from when we've previously seen him doing miracles, right? He's, he's still the same old Jesus, doing the same miracles by the, with the same ease, the same amount of efficiency. Uh, this is the same as we've seen in Luke chapter one, right? He's not changed. He's still able to do the healing, still able to do the miracle, no problem. But what has changed is the disciples from the early part of chapter nine till now, they've changed. And so <laughs> God, uh, is, is, it tends to be like this. He tends to be consistent where we are inconsistent. He tends to be able to do things even if we're unable to do things. This tends to be uh, something that should be an encouragement to us and not necessarily a discouragement because on the one hand we see that in the disciples and their inconsistency we, are, we see ourselves in our own inconsistencies in our lives but in Jesus' unchanging nature we see that oh, well, God is, is like that. He doesn't change. It's not that his power is limited or short. It's simply uh, a reflection on the disciples and their shortcomings. Jesus is still able to do the miracle. He's still unchanging, even though the disciples weren't able to play that out on the ground. And the text is clear. Jesus is able to do so with, with very little effort, even though the disciples uh, cannot do it, no matter how much they, they try. And there's nine of them. And no doubt they probably didn't just try once. They probably gave it a couple of goes. Um, before they were willing to admit defeat. And so if we're, if we're putting these things together, let's say contrasting Jesus's consistency with our inconsistency or on the ground here, Jesus's consistency with the disciples' inconsistency, uh, we see that Jesus's reference back to the people of Israel in Numbers and Deuteronomy and the reference to faithlessness and twistedness is also not something that happens in a vacuum because in that very same passage in Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the people That what is their God like? He's the Lord, the Lord, a God who's steadfast and faithful, long-suffering with his people. Long-suffering with his people. He is able to bear with them and their inconsistencies and their inadequacies, uh, almost as a mark of how he relates to his people. It's one of the things he says when he reveals himself to Moses on the mountain. I am the Lord God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love or abounding in loving kindness, or abounding in long-suffering with my people. And Jesus asks the same kind of question here. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Or how long am I to be with you and suffer alongside you? How long am I, Jesus, to suffer with you in the way that God suffered with the people of Israel? And the answer, we we might say, that oh, that's a very negative kind of question from Jesus. But actually... you look at how that plays out when God says it to the people of Israel, it's actually a mark of his character overriding their inconsistency. His steadfastness overriding their twistedness. When he says that to them in Deuteronomy, well, what you need to know is they still haven't gone through judges. They still haven't gone through King Saul. They still haven't gone through David and all the sin involved in his life. They still haven't gone through any of the kings and their apostasy. And nevertheless, God still preserves them, blesses them, gives to them the promised land and suffers long with them. It's not a commentary on his uh, short fuse. It's actually a reference to his nature or his character, which is his long-sufferingness. And so Jesus, when he's saying these words, is, is bringing to mind, to the disciples' mind, that just as God suffered with the people of Israel for generations and their failures, so he too will Be able to suffer with the disciples and their failures for as long as need be. Jesus is under no delusion that disciples are going to be perfect in their carrying out of ministry. God was under no delusions that Israel was going to fall short in their carrying out of the ministry. He knew what he was getting into. He knew his people. He knew that they were stiff-necked and stubborn people. Jesus knows because he handpicks each of these disciples. He knows what they're like. He's not going to heap unrealistic expectations upon them. But he is going to reflect and say, I will suffer with you. Now, this is not to excuse the disciples' shortcomings. But it is merely to say that when you're asking the question, "Okay, the disciples fall short. How is is that good for us? How is that something we can learn from? Well, uh, Jesus does not fall short, even though they do. It's a strong commentary, even for modern disciples of Jesus, because uh, he's still the same God. He's still unchanging. He's still able to suffer with us. And our continuing failure to do what we ought to do. Think about how often uh, we know that we ought to do something and we don't. We've been given the gift of the gospel. We've heard the message of the truth of God's word. And then when we turn to uh, an unbelieving neighbor or coworker or friend or family member or someone who's doubting in their faith, and we know what we ought to do, what we ought to say, what we ought to correct them in, what we ought to encourage them in, and yet maybe for fear of speaking or uh, fear of what they might think or even self-doubt and making ourselves seem foolish. We hold our tongue and don't say something. And it's in every one of those moments that while we might fall short, God is nevertheless able to suffer alongside us and work with us and does not abandon us and say, oh, you didn't share the gospel when you ought to have. I guess you're no longer my disciple and out with you back to the world. He knows what he's signing up for. Now that does not excuse our inability to do the things we ought to do. It's simply to say that in our failures, God is not going to treat us based on our actions. He's not going to give up on us just because we behave as disciples behave. Again, it's not an excuse to not do what we ought to do, but it is to say that God knows what he's signed up for. He knows what he's gotten into. So the disciples fall short. They are unable to drive out the demon. Jesus is so easily able to do it. And then the text pivots to us and tells us another ways in which the the disciples fall short. And there's so much in this text that I I must glance over much of what is in here. But in verse uh, 43, we see that they marvel at the majesty of God and the healing. And while they are all marveling at everything, Jesus pivots. And he turns now to his disciples. And he says, verse 44, tell me if you recognize these words. Let these words sink into your ears. Remember the voice on the mountain from the cloud speaking to Peter, James, and John, who says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And here Jesus turns to his disciples and says, listen to me. Listen to my words. Let them sink into your ears. And what did he tell them? No new information. He tells them what he told them in verse 22 of Luke chapter 9. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, why does he share that information right now? How is that relevant to any of what just happened? Well, uh, verse 43 tells us the crowd marvels at the majesty of God because of the healing. And then Jesus takes this time to tell them about how he's to suffer. It's not all that different from Peter proclaiming the Christness of Jesus, saying, you are the Christ. And then Jesus quickly turning and saying, and this is what the Christ is like. You want to know what the majesty of God is like while you marvel at it? Let me me show you. You You can easily see the majesty of God in the healing. It's a lot harder for people to see the majesty of God in the cross. But don't mistake it. Listen to my words. Let them sink into you. The Son of Man is to be delivered in the hands of men. It's also the majesty of God. The majesty of God is both displayed in the powerful healing that Jesus does and also the betrayal of the Son of Man into the hands of men. And the disciples, verse 45, don't get that. Now, that's not to say that they don't understand how the words connect, and they can't make sense of what Jesus is saying, or they somehow forget to speak Aramaic, and they, they can no longer communicate with Jesus. It's not that they don't perceive in that way. What, what he means to say is, category one, Messiah, is not for them overlapping with category two, suffering servant. They're not able to piece these things together. And so while they might have heard what Jesus said, they haven't quite figured out how that's gonna play out on the ground yet. And it seems as though they're unable to resolve this tension. It's not gonna become clear to them. They do not understand the saying and they do not perceive what he had spoken. Or in other words, it was concealed from them. Now that concealment is not God actively preventing them from seeing something that they could otherwise have plainly seen. It is God actually leaving them to their natural understanding. And that's what's causing their lack of perception. It's not that God shrouds their eyes actively or otherwise they would have plainly understood it. It's that in their natural state of perceiving and understanding and making sense of things, they don't put it together and God has not yet pulled back the veil from their eyes which is their, let's say, natural condition. In fact, Jesus in Luke 24 has to painfully walk through the teaching of the scripture with his disciples and the spirit has to work in their hearts at that point for them to see all the things together. And it's not as though these words weren't in their minds. It's simply that they just couldn't understand how those things fit together. This is something that Jesus is emphasizing and he will continue to emphasize in his ministry. But at this juncture in verse 44, we can, we can say, Okay, why is it that Jesus turns around and says to them, you need to listen to this, you need to pay attention to these words, the Son of Man will suffer, will be betrayed. Why is it that he is going to continue to reteach them the same old information? On the one hand, uh, we can say it's because disciples not only forget how to cast out demons, they also forget how to make sense of the character of God. How often have you heard a truth about God read about it, studied it, reflected on it, even rejoiced over it, and then six months later you found yourself having forgotten that truth in your daily life. And someone tells you or reminds you of that same goodness of God and you say, oh yes, I now remember and this is again an encouragement to me. Disciples not only forget how to do things that they ought to have done, they also forget basic information about their God that they ought not to forget. It's kind of the mark of a disciple. There's no linear growth on the on the train and so far as we expect linear growth from ourselves we will consistently fall short of that and become frustrated at that and if we're not careful we might see that as a reflection on god's inability to strengthen us or heal us or grow us as though it's a reflection on his power and it's not but it is an unrealistic expectation that we would grow perfectly without sin for the rest of our days on this planet the scripture is clear that disciples must grow but It's also clear that disciples grow in kind of an inconsistent way. And we see that modeled here from the disciples. And we even in our own experience can reflect on how that's true in our lives and lives of those around us. And then we can say, well, God is long suffering with them, even in their slow perception of who he is. He's like that with us too, because he's a consistent God. And we ought to be like that with other disciples who we're walking with. Suffering long with them and encouraging them even when they're slow to understand things. Not because we're God, but because uh, we are being conformed to the image of God and so far as we desire to reflect His love and His compassion and His long-suffering, we do the same for those who we engage in ministry with. We love them, we suffer with them, we're patient in their weakness. That's the mark of a disciple. Paul examines examines this perfectly in 1 Corinthians, where he he actually tells the Corinthian church, I didn't exact money from you, not because I didn't have the ability to, but because your discipleship wasn't yet up to par where you would understand that I was actually doing that out of pure motives. I didn't want you to think that I was doing that to get the gospel. I wasn't preaching the gospel to you to get money. So I actually suffered with you. I actually suffered so much that I had to get a second job for the sake of appeasing you and meeting you where you were at. Now, Paul is modeling long-suffering. There's a theologically correct thing for the Corinthian church to do, which would have been for them to support Paul so he could teach them full time. But Paul says, I suffered with you. I suffered alongside you. He mo- he's modeling that long suffering. And we ought to do that with, with many people who we engage in ministry with. Because God does that even with us. And whether we're aware of it or not, that is happening. There's many ways in which our conceptions of God fall short of the perfect standard. There's many ways in which our theology can't piece everything together well. And that doesn't mean that God says, well, I'll accept you as a disciple once you understand these things perfectly. These guys are still his disciples, even though they can't figure out one of the, what we would say is one of the most foundational truths that Jesus is both the Christ and a suffering servant. But they don't get that in the moment yet, and they're still being discipled by him. They're still walking alongside him. Here's the, the, the take-home point on that. Don't let your conception of Jesus get in the way of you understanding who he really is. The reason the disciples can't figure out who Jesus is or they can't make sense of these words is not because the words aren't plain, but because they have this conception of what a Messiah ought to be like that is hindering their ability to understand who he's teaching them the Messiah is like. If you grow up in church or in the West, you have a conception of God, a conception of Jesus, a conception of love, a conception of mercy, a conception of justice, All of these are conceptions that we carry with us into our discipleship with Jesus. And when he tells us things in his word that don't category fit with things that we have brought in, we can choose to either reject the new information and keep the category or augment the category in light of the information that we've gotten from the word of God. Don't let your conception or notion about who God is or what he's like or what he ought to do hinder you from seeing who he actually is, what he's actually like, and what he's actually doing in the world. There's so many ways to go wrong with this. If I was to try to explain or apply them all, it would exhaust the time that we have remaining. But there are so many ways in which our conceptions of God are, are distorted. And there's so many ways in which we just need to pay close attention to what scripture tells us about God. And our culture disciples us into many ways of understanding the world around us. And if we're not careful, we won't be aware of how that discipleship has affected how we understand Jesus and what he's like. So we need to be careful of these kinds of things. Now, if I'm uh, going to try to bring this all to a head, one of the things that we see abundantly clear in this text is not only is the God of the Old Testament long-suffering with his people, Israel, the reference that Jesus makes there in uh, his quotation, but also Jesus is like that with his disciples, and he, he continues to be like that with his church. He is a long-suffering god this is the thing that marks him well what does that have to do with okay how you go tomorrow when you show up to work or when you meet with a friend or when you talk with someone in your family who's frustrating or as you just live your life how does that affect how you go out and engage with the world well who do you focus on when you live in the world if your focus is on yourself or other Christians around you and how they're doing just know that that focus is on something that can shift can change can take six steps backwards at any moment in time that's a bad place to focus if you're focusing on how you're growing in holiness that's great so long as you're growing in holiness and then if you take one step backwards you might have your whole faith shaken at that moment so in light of all of this that we've seen in the text who do we focus on focus on Jesus We focus on him because he's not only long-suffering, which informs how we should see ourselves, he's patient with us. It also tells us that he is unchanging, right? He's still able to cast out the demon even though they're not able to. He's still able to do all the things he was able to do before the disciples fell short. And the text is going to tell us that's still true. And by the way, his identity hasn't changed either, right? He tells us that in verse 45, or sorry, in verse 44, that he's still going to have to suffer and die. He's unchanging. Changed, even though they've fallen short. He is an unchanging God. So, when we reflect on who God is, what He's like, let's say as we look at our sin and in light of God's holiness, we might be tempted to look at how good we're doing in this moment and have that inform how we see ourselves and our relationship with God. And that's maybe fine if you're doing well in that moment, or it can lead to a great amount of guilt and despair. But scripture is clear that if you are in Christ, if you are trusting Jesus for salvation, that it's actually not at all dependent on how you're doing in any one given moment with how God sees you. God sees you and me on the basis of Jesus's work, not on the basis of our own work. And we have this tendency, this perversion, this twistedness about us that constantly seeks to supplant his righteousness, his perfect righteousness for how we're doing in any given moment. And we might not recognize that as a problem until we see when we fall short that this leads us to guilt and shame and condemnation and in many, many ways of not being able to engage with God because we think that somehow he looks at us differently now because of how we've conducted ourselves. And it's not an excuse to go on in that state of sin. It's only to say that, well, he's actually not changed, even though we have. So turn your eyes to Jesus. Behold his wonderful face. As other uh, hymns will say it. We, we don't reflect on ourselves when we sing music about God. Why, why do we sing when we sing in church? Why do we sing so much about God and what he's like? We're training ourselves to focus on what's actually uh, stable. We don't focus so much on how great our praise is for God. We focus on how great God is towards us. If you've never uh, read the hymn, or perhaps it is a very familiar one to you, I would encourage you to read the lyrics to the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And just notice how in the song, it's always turning your mind, turning your affections to God and not to how you're doing in any given moment. You could sing that song if you were doing great the last week and you can sing that song if you just had the worst week of your life. It doesn't change because it's actually not dependent on how you're doing at all. The song is fixed on God's unchanging character. These are the kinds of things we need to remind ourselves of regularly. These are kinds of ways in which we need to correct ourselves. Because we have a twistedness to us. We have a crookedness that tries to always turn internal to ourselves and forget God and functionally live in a faithless kind of way, in a way that sees our righteousness as a right standing before him. And we need to always be course correcting from that. The disciples, they need to be course correcting. And they do sometimes. But what you're going to see clear in this text and clear in the coming weeks is that course correction is not only, let's say, a convenient thing for the disciples to do. It's not only necessary. It's vital for their very livelihood. Because if they're unable to course correct, if they're unable to fix on Jesus and what he's like, they are going to have a hard time living in the world. They're going to have a hard time engaging with the world around them. In light of who Jesus is and his consistency, God's long-sufferingness with his people we ought to focus on his long suffering. We have to focus on his patience. We have to focus on his righteousness and not our own because his character is stable and ours is unstable. His goodness is constant and ours is fluctuating. His righteousness is perfect and ours is imperfect. God is patient and we need him to be so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this time in your word. We thank you that you can encourage us. You can strengthen us through text that has been recorded thousands of years ago. That you still speak in and through your word and by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you sear into our hearts the truths of this text. Lord, whatever is true and lovely and good and beautiful, would you by your spirit draw that to our minds? And whatever is fleeting and fading away and crooked and a misunderstanding, would you suppress that by your grace? Renew our minds, conform us into the image of Christ, and help us, Lord, by your grace and your abundant patience. Help us to grow and help us to become the people that you are making us into. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.